this series um, called, Did God Really Say? And it's based on that verse all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent questions God and questions the truth of God to Eve and says, did God really say that you can't eat fruit of any tree in the garden? And then she, you know, they have this dialogue, this exchange, which eventually leads to Eve eating the fruit and convincing Adam to eat the fruit. And we've talked about how that is the basis for all of the lies and deceit that we experience in our present age. Did God really say? That's the foundation for deception in our society. And so we're going through a series, and as I've been studying, and as we've talked about this even at staff a couple of weeks ago, uh, there are so many lies that we believe that there's no possible way I can get them all into one sermon series. So um, we're going to be relying heavily on workplace, on our Monday through Friday workplace experience to, to cover some of these things in a little more detail so that we can expound on them because I, I know there's no way we can do it justice uh, in the time we have on, in the morning. So if you're not on Workplace, you can just put a, say, I want to be on Workplace and give us your email address and put it on the card and drop it in the offering basket and we'll get you added there. But before we do that, um, when I was a kid, you know, my dad grew up out here in the Northwest, and he grew up on a tree farm. And so my dad's growing up experience was logging, and in fact, he did a lot of logging when he was in high school and just, just past high school when he was becoming you know, an adult, and, and that was one of his main sources of income, his first sources of income, and he, he had this huge chainsaw, and, and he still has it. I don't know what the number was on it. It was old. But, I mean, the thing probably weighed 20 pounds at least. And, but he, and it, he, you know, it's one that you could put a great big bar on, like a 50-inch bar on. So you can go out and you can actually cut down some of the big timber that existed out in the forest. And, and so he, you're going up and down steep hills and lugging this thing. And my dad's arms were just permanently huge, I think, as a result of carrying that saw through. I mean, just great big forearms and big muscles. He was just always ripped, even though he never worked out a day in his life. And um, he was just always actually working, which is ironic when you think about that, instead of working out. But that's neither here nor there. He, so he would do logging. So he was really good at logging, really good at falling trees. And, you know, I remember, I remember a lot of times watching my dad because we would get firewood and so we'd go out and fall a tree, and you know, he could pretty much put it where he wanted it. And of course, good loggers are able to do that, right? They're able to kind of look at a tree and decide which, which way the tree is leaning, which side has the most weight. It's a little easier with fir trees than it is with oak trees and other things that have big branches going off in different directions. But, but he could kind of evaluate a tree and then decide which way he wanted it to go and put it pretty much where he wanted it to go. Unless, of course, there was something on the other side of that tree. And that's the case in this one particular story where there's our, our piece of property growing up was, was clear of trees all the way to the back, like 700 feet straight back to a fence. It was just all clear of trees. But on both sides, there was forest. On both sides, the, the property owners still had trees on either side. And on the, so, on the side, on, I guess it would be 
The east side, I had to remember there for a second, on the east side, there was a tree that was leaning over towards, uh, I guess, no, this one, there, it had two, it had two stems, I'm trying to remember as I talked about it, it had two stems, one had our, tr- our tire swing in it, and dad didn't cut that one down, and there was one that's kind of hanging downhill, but it was hanging out towards the neighbor's property, but it had a disease on it, all the branches had these little you know, things that looked like nuts, but it was right in the middle of a branch, so it had some kind of disease, and dad wanted to cut it down so that the disease didn't spread to some of the other trees, and, but it was was leaning the wrong way. It's going the wrong direction. And so my dad, being comfortable in doing this, climbed way up into the tree and tied a rope up in the top of the tree. And maybe he tied several ropes together. I don't remember. It was, I was, it was long enough ago that I can't remember. But he, he tied several ropes maybe up in this tree, tied them together, and then had my sister and I out there I think, I don't know, probably, I was probably eight, my sister was probably nine, maybe eight to ten range, and, and he took this rope all the way out to, to you know, our yard, our side of the yard, and, and, he, and he said, now, I want you to pull on it, and, 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 you know, so just keep pulling on it, you don't have to pull really hard, I just need you to pull on it so there's some pressure on it so it falls the way that we want it to fall, and, and then once it starts falling, run. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm not so sure this is a good idea. Like, are you sure this is what you want us, your children, to do, to, to be, you know, kind of standing in the path where you're hoping this tree is going to fall, and in, ta- and in fact, you're you're giving us a rope because you want it to fall in this spot. You want us to stand where the tree is going to end up and pull and then run. And even, even my mom, who if you've met my mom, you know she's not the type to really speak up and, and say something, said, Jim, I don't think this is a very good idea. <laughs> are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? I'm not sure. Mom wasn't sure. I'm not sure. Well, my dad was sure. My dad had way more experience than all the rest of us. He knew way more about falling trees than any of the rest of us knew, and we did what dad said, and he, he went, you know, and he cut out the face and got it cut where he, so it could fall where he wanted it, and then, then started cutting, and then he just pulled, he just yelled, so we just started pulling, and the tree fell right where dad wanted it to go. I don't know about you, but have you ever found yourself in a a similar situation where, where there's someone in your life, you know that they know way more than you know, they're, they're an expert in a given field. They're an expert in a given subject. You know, they've, they've been married for 50 years, and they know how to have a long-lasting marriage. Or they've been working at your workplace for much longer than you, and they know all the ins and outs of it. But yet, once in a while, something will happen, and there is some, there's, there's some unknown knowledge that this person has that causes them to make a decision causes them to, to say, uh, this is what we're going to do. And from your perspective, your limited perspective, where you stand, where you sit, it looks like a bad idea, right? I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I've experienced that on a number of occasions in my life. I'm not so sure we should be doing this. Are, are you sure that's what you want to do? Are you sure 
that's where you want to go. Are you sure you want to take that exit? Are you sure? And we find ourselves questioning those we should be trusting. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, this is kind of our, our, key, our key passage that's setting our mindset for this series. Colossians 2, 20 through 23 says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They have the appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. These, these three phrases, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, uh, those are, that's a summary statement of the, uh, of the ritual aspects of the Old Testament law. So I'm not going to get into all the detail about that if you have questions about that. This isn't the moral or ethical law. This is the ritual part of the law, and these are summary statements for that. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And Paul is writing specifically to address uh, Jewish Christians who had started to bring the Old Testament law and the Old Testament rituals into Christianity, and he's addressing some of that. So he says, since you died to that, why are you trying to bring that into life? That is part of what you died to. Why are you trying to bring it into your life in Christ? But that first verse, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why... As though you belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Is a question that we need to be asking ourselves this day. Why are we submitting to the rules of this world as though we belong to this world? Why do we submit to the thinking and the beliefs of this world as though we belong to this world? Because what the Bible teaches us is that for any, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and now we are citizens of another world. We're citizens of heaven. And Paul is saying, why are you submitting to the rules of the world you have died to and not to the rules of the world that you've been resurrected into? These rules, these ideas, these beliefs, they seem wise, but indeed they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And in fact, the rules of this world are built in the opposite way. But today I'm addressing, hopefully addressing, and I wrestled with this one a lot because there's so much to this one, but there's no way I can fit it all in in the time that we have this morning. So you're going to have to take notes. I gave some space on your notes where I'm going to cover some specific things that God is towards the end of the sermon. So, so there's space for you to write them all in. They'll be up on the screen. We'll cover them, but we'll cover them quickly. So get your hand ready. But um, everything... 
when it comes to God, from the beginning all the way through the end of the story that we see in Scripture comes down to one word, belief. Everything from the beginning before the fall all the way until God restores everything at the very end of the story comes down to this word belief. In the beginning, it was just simply believing God and not eating of the one tree said not to eat, eat from. It's just simple belief. And then all the way through Scripture after we disobeyed God, it's been about belief. And we see this with, with Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. For us in the kingdom of God, it has to do with only belief. And a lot of lies have come out of all of the stuff we've tried to add on top of belief. Well, it's believe God and this. Believe God and, well, it's, it's, it can't just be belief, it's, but it is just belief. In fact, Jesus said it's belief. John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29 this is just after Jesus had fed the 5,000 and the crowds followed him around wanting more free bread because they ate their fill and they felt good about it. They wanted more food. They asked him, verse 28, well then, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You might want to write that one down. The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. That is the work of God. That is the entire work of God that he has given us as believers to do, to believe in the one he has sent. Everything comes down to belief. Do we believe God? Do we believe in Jesus whom he sent? It's belief. It is not to do, act, think, or say. It is to believe. It is not to do. It is not to act a certain way. It is not to think a certain way. It is not to say a certain thing or speak a certain way. It is belief. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And in fact, if I may be so bold as to say, I think there are probably some among us who have never known God only our version of God. There may be some in this room who, who have called themselves believers their whole lives, but, but belief was doing, acting, thinking, and saying, not believing. It's not about our religious duties and activities. It is about a relationship with our Heavenly Father, which is possible through Jesus Christ. So then, when there is a contradiction between what we think about God and who God really is, how do we respond? When there's a contradiction between what we think about God in our minds about God and who God really, really is, how do we respond? Do we change or do we try to change who God is? Do we change, do we adapt to who God is, or do we try to change God? Up in the top right-hand corner of your notes, there's a space to fill this in. Any version of God that is not based on God's definition is a perversion. 
Any version of God that is not based on God's definition is a perversion. And some of us have extremely perverted versions of God. You see, the doing, the acting, the thinking, and the speaking flow from the relationship. They don't create it. The doing, the acting, the thinking, and the speaking are designed to flow out of our relationship and our identity and who God says we are as His children. It's supposed to be something that comes out of, not something we do to try to force and facilitate it. So while doing, acting, thinking, and speaking are products of it, they are not what leads to it. But if your relationship with God never moves you to do, act, think, or speak differently, that's also a perversion. These are what I'm calling lies of belief, or God is too small. If your relationship with God never moves you to do, act, think, or speak differently, that's a perversion, and I call, I'm calling those lies of belief. But at the same time, if your relationship with God is based on what you do, that also is a perversion, and I'm calling these lies of control, or your God is too safe. God is too small, or God is too safe. Those are the two categories we're going to use to talk about the lies for the rest of our time this morning. But before we do that, I want to give you maybe a simple little tool to help you in your relationship with God to understand if we are believing or if we are trying to do something else. And this was something that, that I think God gave to me this morning while I was praying, preparing for this. And it's a simple idea that belief that does, that does not produce faith and trust is no belief at all. Belief that does not produce faith and trust is no belief at all. Simple example. If I believe that I can, I've used this before probably, if I believe that I can step out off of this stage and walk on air, but I never take a step, do I actually believe that I can do this? Belief that does not produce faith and trust is no belief at all. See, if I really believed, I would just take a step out and I didn't believe. Oh, that's why it didn't happen. I didn't believe. And that's where I think we get off base. Belief that does not produce faith and trust is no belief at all. Belief is all about God, not about me. Belief is all about God, not about me. It's not about my ability to believe in God enough that gets me to the point where I think I can step off of this stage and not fall or come crashing to my death. That is not the point. That is what we make it in our own religious and perverted versions of Christianity. But that is not what it is because true belief has nothing to do with who I am. It has everything to do with who God is. So when we come to a crisis of belief, then how do we respond? When, when something doesn't make sense, when, when God is asking us to do something that just seems outlandish and weird, how do we respond? How do we respond? And this is where I think 
we can start to identify some of the lies that we believe about God in particular. How do we respond when God asks us to do something? Do we trust or doubt? When it doesn't make sense, when what God is asking you to do doesn't make sense, how do we respond? Do we trust or doubt? Do we trust or disbelieve? Do we trust on God or do we disbelieve God? See, trust then is about God and believing what God says and believing what God has given us to do. Disbelief then becomes about me, right? Because I don't believe enough. While it's not on the strength of my belief, it is on the God who existed before me. How do we respond? Lies of belief. Lies of belief, or your God is too small. I've talked before about how we, we, we have often limited God. We have defined God and created a box in which our God lives. And anything outside that box is not God. But what I've come to experience and know about God is that God tends to exist outside the box. In fact, God cannot be contained in a box, and that is a biblical truth we're going to talk about in a minute. But lies of belief and lies of control. Lies of belief. God is too small. I don't believe these are lies. By the way, a whole bunch of lies in what I'm getting ready to say. I don't believe God is who he says he is or that he can do what he says he can do. That's at the heart of this lie of belief that God is too small. Lie number one, I don't believe God is really good. I think he can do good things, but I don't really believe God is actually good. If he was, well, then he wouldn't send good people to hell, right? If God was really good, then he wouldn't send good people to hell. This is a lie that we believe. We think that God isn't good. By the way, I did a sermon on this back in May sometime. Um, if you just do a search for, I think it's Luke 5, 12, was about, about where it was. I'll post it later just in case you want to listen to it or talked about God being good. Don't have time to get into it in depth today. But it's a lie that we believe that God isn't really good. And it's because we've allowed lies to get into our thinking because how could a good God send good people to hell just for not believing in him? I mean, if somebody is really good and they live their whole life good and they do all of these good things for their entire life, certainly when they get to the end of their life, there's going to be enough good to outweigh the bad and God is going to look on them and say, hey, I'm going to let you into my kingdom just because you did more good things than you did bad things. That is not a biblical idea. In fact, that is an Egyptian idea. That is not scriptural. We believe some lies, though, that have led us to that thinking. 
that people are basically good. People are basically good, and, 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 and men and women in their hearts are just good-natured people. They, they're just good, and they do bad things once in a while. Well, that's not what Scripture teaches either. We believe the lie that we, we can do enough good to outweigh the bad, but the problem with that is, is then who determines what's good and who determines what's bad? Because what it really boils down to is that we think we get to determine what is good and what is bad. And so the scales of justice are based on our, deficient, our definitions of what is right and what is wrong, which makes us God, and God is not God. It's a lie. So I don't believe God is really good. The second lie is that God doesn't or can't love me. God doesn't, God can't love someone like me. This is a lie we have believed. We believe that God is harsh and judgmental. We believe that God hates me. We believe that God only loves me when I behave. We believe that God can't forgive what I've done or what I'm actually still doing. God doesn't, and He can't love me. This is a lie of belief. We make God too small. If God loved me, dot, dot, dot. If God really loved me, He would, dot, dot, dot. Right? I mean, we do this all the time, don't we? If God loved, God, if you really love me, you will, dot, dot, dot. We make God incredibly small. God only exists to do what we give Him to do. We, we make God incredibly small. We make God's love incredibly small. We, we, we make God's love something that we can out-sin. We make God's love something that we are attention for all practical purposes more sovereign than, we have more power than, we have more oomph than God's love because I can do something to out God's love for me. I am the one person on the planet for whom God did not send His Son to die because of all of the wrong that I have done. God cannot possibly forgive me, or I continue to struggle in these areas of my life. There is no way that God could love me after all that I have done. We have made God too small, and His love too small. God's love only exists in this box, and I've done things outside the box, and there's no way God can love me. It's a lie. Another lie, equally as harmful, if not more harmful, is that I can or I have to earn God's love. Some of us have grown up in churches where we think that we have to earn God's love, and that is the only way for us to exist in relationship with God, that I have to earn it. And the only way for me to earn God's love is when I'm behaving, and when I'm not behaving, He doesn't love me. So when I'm not behaving, then I'm outside of God's love. And so my obedience becomes a thing that determines whether or not God's love, God loves me. And then there are those that never come to God because they think they have to earn God's love, and there's no way they could. This is a lie. It's putting God in a box. It is saying, this is what God's love looks like. 
This is how God's love exists. And when I do the things inside the box, I earn God's love. And when I do things outside the box, I'm going to be harshly judged by God because he actually hates me. He doesn't love me. It's a lie. Another lie of belief is this. Wrong and unbiblical beliefs. This one is kind of fun. At least I think it's fun. Some of you might get offended by it, but that's not really on me. Um, I, want to, I want to fix it as best we can. We think that God is a... God is a Christian. We think God is a Christian. Some of us maybe grew up thinking that God is a Catholic. One of the things I wanted to do um, was to put together some clips for today that shows all of the different ways God has been portrayed in the media. And it's just, there's, I looked at some of them, and it's so distasteful and blasphemous for the most part that there's no way I could put it in front of you in good conscience. And so, um, but we think based on, on Catholic views of what God looks like, that God is a Catholic. Or some of us grew up, you know, Baptist, or I grew up Wesleyan, maybe you grew up Nazarene, or Assemblies of God, or Pentecostal, or whatever, whatever you grew up in, we think God is that. God is Baptist. God is Wesleyan. A far more damaging one is that we think God is a Republican or a Democrat. <laughs> I think we've disproven that theory. Or we think, yeah, he's independent. Or he's a liberal or a conservative. God is. God is not any of these things. That's a wrong or it's an unbiblical belief. And the last one I want to point out, an unbiblical belief that belief is only for the weak. We only believe God because we're weak. And to my question to you, if you're a skeptic this morning, if you're doubting this morning, if you think belief is only for the weak, I would ask you, have you tried it? If you have tried it, you know belief is not only for the weak. In fact, it takes everything by God's design. And that's where most of us get hung up. Those are lies of belief. God is too small. Lies of control, God is too safe. God is too safe. Lies of control. I believe he can, I just think my way is better. I believe he can, but I'd rather do it my way. God is too safe. We, we limit how God can work into a box of safety, and we don't allow God to work outside that box because we want to control God. These are lies of control. The first one I want to mention is that is one that's pretty popular. Um, it says that God won't give me more than I can handle. God, God would never give me more than I can handle. He loves me, and so he's only going to give me the easy life. Once I become a Christian, all my problems are going to go away. And then as a result of that, we believe this lie. Because I have trials, God is judging me because God actually hates me. He doesn't really love me. And when things don't go my way, it must be because God doesn't love me or because he's mad at me. It 
But most of the time, it's because of us, because we've defined the only acceptable ways for God to answer our prayers. We have defined and created a box of control that's the only acceptable response from God, and God can only work in this way. And when he answers them in a different way, we believe God doesn't love us, God does not exist, God is judging me, God hates me, God cannot possibly love me. Because if God loved me, he would do what I wanted him to do. When things don't go my way, once I become a Christian, all my problems are going to go away. And when things don't go my way, it's because God doesn't love me. Let's look at our 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. This is Paul talking about some of his experience as a Christ follower. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. This is Paul talking. Now, if you don't know much about Paul, you should go read the book of Acts and see all of the things. It seemed like flogging was a hobby for him. He just happened to get flogged all of the time. And when he tries to go into the province of Asia and share the gospel in the province of Asia, this is the response. And so if he's saying this, if this is Paul saying this is how he was treated, I think it bears great weight in our thinking. I don't want you to be uninformed about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God would never give me more than I can handle. If God loved me, all of my problems would go away. When things don't go my way, it must be because God doesn't love me. Or could it possibly be, could it, could it just maybe be that God loves you? Have you ever thought about that? Has that ever shaped your thinking that because God loves you so much, he wants to take you through some process of refinement to get those things, those lies, those disbeliefs, those doubts out of your life once and for all so that you can come out looking more like his son? Have we ever considered that that might be God loving us? We don't feel that way when we're going through a trial, but could that possibly be what it is? God won't give me more than I can handle. Another one is that God wasn't there for me when I needed him the most. So it's better for me to be in control. Okay, I can kind of get my head around the idea that God loves me and that he wants to, you know, that he sent his son to die for me. But, uh, but what about that time? What about that time when I was going through this trial, when I was going through this struggle, and, and, and you weren't there for me? Where were you? Could it be that we were expecting him to show up in our way and not looking for him to show up in his way? And because God is going to do what's best for us, not what's easiest for us, we missed him entirely. God was there all along. This last lie in this realm is, 
I believe he's God, but he's not in control. This is a popular lie in our culture today. I believe he's God, but he's not in control. There are other gods. And God is just one way to the more desirable afterlife. That, that he isn't the one way, that he's one of many ways. That, 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 that you know, if he was a really, I mean, how could he just be, how could he be loving if he's going to make him the only way? There are, there are other gods. That's a lie that we believe. We believe that Satan can still defeat God, and we believe that good is fighting evil as though good has not yet won. We, be, we believe that he's God, but he's not in control. He, he's God, but, but I mean, there are just other forces in this world that are as strong or stronger than God, and there's an epic battle going on in, in the spiritual realm right now, and we just don't know yet who has won, and so we're just going to wait and see who the winner is, and then we'll bandwagon on with that God. It's a lie. The Bible teaches us that God is already victorious. In fact, he has been victorious from before the foundations of the earth, and he will always be victorious because that is who God is. He cannot not be the victor. He has always won because he was always winning. It's a lie. God is in control. Satan cannot defeat God. He has already been defeated. That's in Scripture. Good is not fighting evil. Evil is fighting good, but good has already won. Because God has won. So really quickly, I want to go through this list of 15 things that God is. We're going to cover these in depth, as, oh, not in depth, we're going to give a more in-depth coverage of these in the week ahead on Workplace, so I really encourage you to go and participate there, but I want to cruise through them really quickly, give you simple definitions, and the scriptures are there for you to go look up and, and see them yourselves, but I would encourage you to, to start embracing who the Bible said. By the way, this is just a small list. There's a much bigger list than this, but these are some of the top that I wanted to get across this morning. And so I encourage you to just look at this list and study this list and meditate on this list and think about this list. And when you're believing in God, you're believing in this God. This is who God really is, not who the world has tried to define him as. But this is who God is. God is infinite, self-existing, and without origin. That means God always was, and God always will be, and He always is, because that is who God is. I am that I am. I always am who I always am. There is no beginning. There is no end. That is who God is. God is unchanging. The theological term for this is immutable, if you want to sound fancy, but it's unchanging, that, that God never changes. Who He was, He always will be. Aren't you glad for that? He's not changing based on how we respond to Him. He just always is how and who He always is. God does not change. God is self-sufficient. Did you know that God does not need you to be God? Like, there's nothing that God needs from you so that He can be God. He is self-sufficient. 
A lot of us get messed up because we think God needs us, and God is a needy God, and he needs my money, and he needs my time, and he needs my family, and he needs everything about me so that he can do what he wants to do because God is a very needy God. He needs my love, and he needs my worship. God does not need you. He is self-sufficient. These are just things that are better for us than the other options. God is all-powerful. There is nothing in existence seen or unseen, that is more powerful than God. God is all-knowing. There is nothing in existence, seen or unseen, that knows more than God. God is present everywhere. That is mean there is nowhere that you have been in your life, nor is there anywhere that you will be that God is not. God is present everywhere. God is all-wise. When we need wisdom, we ought to go to God because he is all-wise. And he says, if we ask for wisdom, he will give it to us. We ought to go to God because he is all-wise. God is faithful. In fact, he is so faithful that he will always be faithful even when we are faithless to him. God cannot be unfaithful. He is always and always will be faithful. God is good. Psalm 34, 8, God is good. He is always good. He has always been good. The is of God is good. That is who God is. God is just, not like we are just, for we all know that if we were the judge, we would make decisions that were unjust, and yet God is perfectly just in every situation, and everything is going to boil out as he has determined it should. God is merciful, This is who God is. God cannot be unmerciful because God is merciful. That means God is merciful to you and to me, his children. God will show mercy because that is who God is. He he is by his nature in his eternity a merciful God just like he is a gracious God. God is gracious to us. God cannot be ungracious. God is loving And in fact, it is by the definition of love that God showed us in sending his son to die for us that we learn what it is that love looks like in the first place. It is this gift that stirred the church into existence, that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us to pay the price that we deserve to pay so that we could come into the presence of God, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and walk through the curtain and stand in God's presence with our Heavenly Father. This is what love looks like, look like sacrificing your life for others. God loves us. God is love. God is holy. There is no unholy aspect of God. It's hard for us to fathom that because we have unholy aspects of our lives. We have never experienced anything that does not have unholy aspects, but God is perfectly holy. There's no sin in him, and God is glorious. God is deserving of our brag. God is deserving of our worship. God is deserving of us exalting him and making much of him and lifting up his name. That is who God is. So when we find ourselves struggling under the weight of the lies that the world is heaping on us about who God is, what we need to do is come back to say, no, this is who 
God is. I, I need to trust who God says God is, not who the world says God is. I, I, I've, been, I've been fed all of these lies. I need to know what God says about who God is. And this is what belief is. Belief is believing what God said about God. It is believing what God said about what He is and what He did. And it's looking at, at who He is and what He did. And then, and then believing that, not anything that I can do to get there on my own. But as we start to wrap up and bring a, a close to this idea, I know there's probably a lot of questions, and I'll do my best to answer them. Send me your messages, your questions. But since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? I think there's one last thing affecting our view of God, and that's we care too much about what non-believers think. We care too much about what the world thinks. We're too busy trying to keep up with people who are living by an entirely different philosophy. Where our eyes are set on people who are living by an entirely different set of rules. On, on our Tuesday night Bible study, our Tuesday evening Bible study in Philippians, we summarized the passage by saying we should keep our eyes focused on those who are running the race ahead of us and not those who are off at the concession stand. And we're constantly looking at those who are at the concession stand instead of those who are at running the race on the track ahead of us. Our focus should not be on the concession stand and wanting the nachos. Aren't those the best? I mean, just, I mean, those are, that there is nothing like that cheese. But we care too much about what the world thinks. We care too much about what non-believers think, and we allow ourselves to get drawn off and focused on the concession stand, looking at those who are indulging the flesh. Why do we care so much about what the world thinks and what non-believers think? We should focus instead on loving God and loving one another like Christ loved us. This is where our, our entire focus should be, is just on loving God and loving one another like Christ loved us. And you know what would happen? Instead of us watering down this experience with God, which is supposed to raise us up and lift us up out of the muck and mire, instead of watering it down to try to blend in, if we just loved God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and we loved others like ourselves, then unbelievers would see how we love one another, and they would see how we love God, and they would not have anything to say. Why do we care so much about what non-believers think? Two sets of questions to bring us to a close. Do you make decisions about life and faith based on the values, rules, and goals of the world? In other words, do you use your world glasses to make decisions about God? Do you use your world glasses to make decisions about the church and loving one another? 
A more direct way of putting it would be, do the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life affect how you love God and love others? Do the desires of your flesh and the desires of your eyes and looking on things and desiring them and the pride of life, your selfish ambition and your vain conceit, do those affect and determine how you love God and love others? If so, we're making decisions about life and faith based on the values, rules, and ambitions of the world. Instead, we need to make decisions about the world based on our belief in God. Do you use your God glasses to make decisions about the world? Do you use your God glasses to make decisions about the church and how you love one another's? Do you let the love of God determine how you will respond to the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Are you letting your belief in God determine everything about your life? Do we go to God first when we don't know the answer, or do we go to what the world says and what the world thinks and what the world believes? Whose glasses are we wearing to make decisions? Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, I know anytime we talk about something like this, that there is a certain amount of weight to it, that we are confronting things that have been hardwired into our deceptive thinking. And that the first response may be offense, but we know that you have something deeper than offense for us. Father, I pray in these last few moments that we have together this morning that you would bring up any lies that we have believed about you, that we believed about what the world says about you, that we, would, that we would allow you to not only bring them to the surface, but to shine the light of truth on them and to illuminate them for the deceit and deception that they are, that we might see they are lies of the enemy trying to get us off track and off course of your desires for our life. And I pray, Father, that you would bring them up, shine your light on them, dissolve them, and the light of your glory and of your grace, that we may just love and believe in you more. In Jesus' name, amen.